Let's pray, shall we? As we turn our attention to God's word this morning. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness. We thank you for your word because it is the truth. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for calling us to Jesus Christ. And God, we just ask and pray your blessing right now on our time. As we look in your word, we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to be at work, to encourage us, to strengthen and equip us. God, that we would rightly handle your word. And Lord Jesus, that your name would be honored in the process. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So, Sarah and I visited a church uh, once where uh, the pastor took his Bible and he opened up his Bible and he, he read a single verse from the middle of a paragraph uh, and then he proceeded to close his Bible, set it down, and he patted it and he said, now I don't know too much about what's in here. I kid you not, that is how he started. Those were his opening words. And I thought, well, buddy, if that's true, you better stop right there. <laughs> you better just stop right there. But he didn't. He, he walked away from his pulpit, never to return, and he ripped that one verse, kicking and screaming, out of context for the next 25 minutes. It was terrible. I recently went to a, a funeral where the gospel was not only not preached, it was obscured. The priest was talking about how we're saved by our works. We have to earn our way to heaven. And I knew that there were many people in that room who did not know the Lord Jesus and who needed the gospel. Not only that, he then proceeded to sing, calling on every saint from Abraham to Athanasius, asking for the deceased to, to help them in to heaven. It went on for more than 10 minutes. And I looked at the people in front of me, people that I knew needed the gospel, and I watched them snicker in mockery at each other. And who can blame them? If this is Christianity, what a joke. What a joke. False teaching has always been something that the church has had to deal with. False teachers come in as the church embraces the worldly culture around it. There's this shift away from a biblical worldview. The flock no longer wants sound doctrine. They want teachers to scratch where they itch. God's truth is then watered down or replaced with man's ideas or entertainment. Preaching about sin and repentance and holiness is avoided People are looking for a truth where the scriptures are faithfully preached because too many pastors are just giving people what they want to hear. There's nothing new about this, though. This was the case in Old Testament Israel. This was the case in the early church, and it has been this way down through the ages, right down to the present day. Now, Peter has just finished talking about genuine prophets, he just finished talking about genuine prophets that spoke the truth, and now he's going to address false teachers who undermine the truth. I want you to follow along as I read our text for today, 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3. You can turn there in your Bibles. That's where we'll be today. Follow along with me. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, that's the people of Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you, 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. The message for us this morning is simple. Hold fast to Christ and his word. Know and follow the way of truth. See, the best defense against lies and false teaching, whether it comes from outside the church or inside the church, is to hold fast to Christ and his word. So we're going to unpack our our text today, and we're going to see what it says about these false teachers, what we can learn about them, and then we're going to apply it at the end with an extended application time, sort of looking at the problem and the solution, if you will. So first, the problem, the destructive heresies of these false teachers. The key word here is destruction. We see it three times in three verses. Now, Peter warns us about the destructive nature of heresy. That's why we have to hold fast to Christ and his word. Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, that's the people of Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. The Old Testament is full of all these examples of people who claim to be speaking for God, but what they were really teaching is their own ideas, their own agenda. Peter is saying, just like those false prophets infiltrated and undermined uh, the people of Israel, so there are going to be false teachers who infiltrate and undermine the church. You shouldn't be surprised by that. Paul warns about this often. And it's a lack of truth that leaves people vulnerable to lies and deception. So we learn several characteristics of these false teachers. Number one, they're devious. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. See, openly opposing the apostles' teaching, that's not going to work. So they bring it in secretly, subtly, through the back door, if you will. And they're subtle so that they can sway Christians who are unsuspecting or who aren't grounded in the truth. This means, brothers and sisters, we need to be alert We need to be watching for this so that we're not taken captive by false teaching, Colossians 2, 8. (laughs) The bad guys only get the drop on the the guard who's not paying attention or the one who's fallen asleep at his post. Second, they're destructive. He says these are destructive heresies. That's what false teaching is. It's destructive by nature. That's what it does. And it's destructive in three ways. First, it destroys the teachers themselves. Peter says they are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. This is eternal condemnation. Second, it destroys the people who follow it by implication here, and that becomes explicit when we get to verse 10. And third, it destroys the reputation of Christ and the church. Peter says that because of them, the way of truth is blasphemed. So false teaching has a profoundly negative impact on God's people. It leads to to misery, destruction. Every heresy that the church has ever dealt with through the ages has been destructive. But there's a silver lining. What's the silver lining? The silver lining is is that it has forced the church to sharpen her theology and her confession of the truth, as it should for us. It should force us back to Christ and his word. Third, they're disobedient. They're disobedient, even denying the master who bought them. This is their great error. 
They deny the lordship of Jesus Christ, and because they won't surrender to him and follow him as their Lord, this is why they live in sensuality. They're disobedient, right? So they reject the master's teaching and, the way, and his way of life, showing us that they're, they're not genuine disciples of Christ. And Jesus told us that his visible church, the church that we can see, would be a mixture of the wheat and the tares, of believers and unbelievers. And here's an example of the tares. These people are unbelievers. As Jesus said, you will know false teachers by their fruits, Matthew 7, 16. They gave the appearance of being believers, but over time it became apparent that they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're unregenerate enemies of God and his truth. Fourth, they are desirable to follow. They're popular. They're successful. Peter says, sadly, many will follow their sensuality, their immoral behavior, their shameful behavior. The false teacher becomes the source of authority for a person. They're the one who determines how the person should think and act rather than the scriptures. They become so devoted to this person that they accept what they say without critically examining what they say. And so they follow their teaching and their example. It's a reminder for us that all teachers are models for their students. That's just as true for parents and mentors as it is for pastors and professors. We're not just conveying information, but a way of life. Christianity is not just a, a bunch of propositional truths to believe. It's a way of life to be lived. And we show by example what it means to follow Christ. Christians follow the master. Now, these false teachers are popular. That's... That's not surprising. <laughs> Teaching that panders to our own uh, flesh, to our own sinful desires, it's always popular. Years ago at another church, uh, I was working in youth ministry, and there was a young man in that church who was struggling with same-sex attraction, with homosexual attraction. And um, he told me this right before he moved away. He moved to the other side of the country. So I tried to disciple him from a distance, but it was hard to keep uh, connected with him. And over time, we talked less and less until finally the last, time we, the last couple times we talked, he said, you know what, uh, I found some pastors and some teachers online who said that homosexuality, it's okay. It's okay for me to do this. And what happened was is these, these teachers online confirmed and strengthened him in his sin. They hardened him to the truth. It was so sad. So sad, but it's not uncommon. Paul warns us that the time is coming when people are not going to endure sound doctrine. They're going to accumulate teachers <laughs> to suit their own passions. This is what people want. People gladly follow teachers who are going to affirm them in their sinful desires. They want a God who's going to affirm their preferred lifestyle. They want a God who wants them to be happy, healthy, and wealthy all the time. They don't want a God who makes moral demands or who is going to hold them accountable. The problem is that God doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. Number five, they're dishonoring to God. Because of them, the way of truth is blasphemed. This is the predictable outcome when people in the church live immorally. It ruins the reputation of Christ in the church. Every time there's a scandal in the church, it becomes ammunition for skeptics to scorn the way of truth. It opens up God's way, Christianity, 
to the reproach of people in the world. God is not mildly annoyed by false teaching. He hates it. It makes him furious because of what it does to his people, because it leads people to destruction, and because it destroys his name and his word. So we see Satan's twofold strategy here. On the one hand, he, he wants to sneak people into the church uh, from within and bring destructive heresy and false teaching. And on the other, he wants to ruin the, the reputation of the church by exposing those false teachers in their moral or moral failure to the world. So to combat that, the church has to do two things. We have to hold fast to sound doctrine and, and we have to live the truth. We have to live the truth. We adorn the truth with godliness. That's the opposite, right? Instead of bringing reproach on the way of truth, we adorn the way of truth by living a godly life, by following Christ faithfully. Now, I want to add here that the fear of blackening the name of Christ or, or the reputation of the church has been used by many people to silence Christians. So afraid, they want to make us afraid that we don't do anything or say anything that might possibly give someone offense. It's been used as a club to silence Christians, and this has actually allowed false teaching to spread. We still have to be courageous. We don't compromise the truth in order to appease people's feelings. We're not concerned here with what people say about us when we follow Christ faithfully. We're concerned about what they say when we don't. Six, they're devouring. In their greed, they exploit people. They're greedy for gain. That's their motive, and they don't care if they have to exploit people in order to obtain it. They're greedy mainly for material gain, wealth and comforts of this life, but this would also include uh, gain of popularity, gain of influence, and so forth. Seven, they're deceptive. They will exploit you with false words. That's their mode of operation. They're liars. They're snake oil salesmen. They're like a shady businessman who misrepresents his merch, right? This is going to cure all your ails. Sounds great. It's garbage. It's a lie. They trade in lies and half-truths and distortions. That's how they operate. And finally, they're doomed. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. As Jude 4 says, they were designated for this condemnation from long ago. They will not escape judgment, nor will those who follow them. And we're going to see more about that next week. Now, there's going to be false teachers in every era of the church. Every church, every Christian is going to have to deal with false teaching in some way. How do we deal with it? What can we do? Well, we're going to keep studying more about these false teachers in the next couple of weeks, and hopefully we'll be able to unpack some of the, the false teachings that we see in our own day. But for today, what we want to focus on, what I want to focus on, is the, the most important point for us, the place for us to focus. The most important thing is knowing the truth, because that's the solution. The, the solution is to know and hold fast to God's truth. We are to test everything and hold fast to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 The best defense against false teaching is knowing the truth. Now, uh, the United States Secret Service is, is 
usually when you think of the Secret Service, you think of the guys who protect people, the guys who protect the president. But I learned this week that the Secret Service was started in 1865 during the Civil War in order to combat counterfeit currency that the Confederates were printing and sending north to try to destabilize things. That's why the Secret Service was originally uh, founded. Hitler and the Nazis tried the same thing during World War II. They tried to counterfeit our currency because they wanted to destabilize uh, the U.S. dollar globally. It didn't work. Why? Because of experts in genuine currency, in real money. Uh, this whole counterfeit thing, is, it's still a huge problem today. In, in 2020, the Secret Service uh, seized $505 million dollars of counterfeit bills. Last year, in 2021, uh, just the first three months of the year, the, the Chicago Bureau captured $1.6 million in counterfeit currency. So this is still a, it's a big problem today. How do they spot this fake money? Well, the real money is embedded with all of these little uh, security features that mark that it's genuine, and they are experts in knowing how to spot those things. They don't study fake money. They don't study all the different kinds of counterfeits that are out there. What they study is real money, so that when they see fake money, they know that's fake because it doesn't have this like real money does. They've got their eyes trained to be able to spot these things. In the same way, we need our eye trained so that we can detect false doctrine. God's word is the truth, and that is our standard that we use to assess if something is false. It's by knowing the truth that we spot these lies or half-truths or distortions. J.C. Ryle said, what is the best safeguard against false doctrine? The Bible, regularly read, regularly prayed over, regularly studied. We've got to be like the Bereans. You remember the Bereans? And they, examined, uh, they eagerly examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's how we need to be. Now, imagine, imagine you want to measure an angle. I think I have it here, yeah. Imagine you want to measure an angle, but you don't know how to use a protractor. <laughs> you want to measure an angle, and you've got the tool, but you don't know how to use it. The tool doesn't do you much good unless you know how to use the tool. In the same way, it's not enough just to have the Bible. You have to know how to rightly handle it so you can hold fast to Christ and his truth. So rather than just tell you this morning, hey, go read your Bibles, which we say all the time. By the way, that's good advice. <laughs> that's good counsel. You should read your Bibles. I, I want to spend some time today trying to give you some practical tools to help you do it more effectively. And I'm hoping in the process that you will see, you will be uh, encouraged to dig into God's word because you see the value of it. But before we do that, I want to set the proper expectations, right? So I want you to have the right expectations when you come to read the Bible in your personal devotions. Number one, expectation. Expect God to meet you in his word. God did not give us the Bible to hide the truth, but to reveal it. Romans 15.4. So when you read the Bible, come to it with the expectation that God is going to teach you. 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. God wants to speak to you. He wants to meet you and talk to you about what's going on in your life. He wants to guide you and direct you. There's going to be joy when you're discouraged and comfort in your affliction and, and guidance and wisdom when you have decisions that you need to make. There's going to be a conviction of sin. God wants 
to meet you there. A lot of times people, they don't want to read their Bibles because they think, well, what's the, I don't, I'm not getting anything out of it. But are you expecting God to show up? Expect him to show up. Number two, expect God's spirit to help you. This is part of his ministry to us. We see it in John 14, 26, John 16, 13, 1 John chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so we pray like the psalmist, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalm 119, 18. Expect it require discipline and effort. Determine, like Ezra, to study God's word. The best thing that you can do is read and read and read and read regularly, consistently, faithfully. Like any discipline, the payoff is in proportion to your effort. And last expectation, when you read your Bible, expect to be attacked. The devil is a deceiver, Revelation 12, 9. He does not want you to read the truth. He's going to do everything he can to try to keep you from God's word. He's going to whisper, you don't need to get up early today. He is going to attack you. No, it's going to come. It's going to come. So take these four expectations with you when you come to the Bible in the morning, when you read your word. Now, what are a couple of resources for you if you want more information? I just brought two today that I thought would be good. Getting the Message by Dan Doriani and Living by the Book by Howard and William Hendricks. If you want, uh, these are both great entry-level, great places to start if you want more on hermeneutics. That is uh, the discipline of how to interpret the Bible. Much of what I'm going to share today comes from these books. Hermeneutics is the study of a text of Scripture in order to ascertain the author's intended meaning. What we're trying to figure out is, what did the author say? Now, of course, the author little a of scriptures like John, Paul, Peter, etc. But the author big A is who? It's God. So we're really trying to answer the question, what has God said? That's what we want to know. And hermeneutics as a discipline, it includes a lot. It includes grammar, syntax, sentence structure, rhetorical devices, genre, historical, device, historical context, literary context. I can't go into it all the detail on all of those areas. I would love to, but we don't have a whole semester to talk about this. I just want to give you some broad principles, three broad principles, as you do your personal study to help you better understand the Bible. It's going to be good not just for your personal study. It will be good also when you are in Bible studies. It's also going to be good when you're listening to teachers, when you're listening to us preach, when you're hearing things on the radio. This is going to be how you can assess if something is off. Does that make sense? This is valuable for you for that reason. Like when your buddy asks you to go to the gym and he's got his I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me workout t-shirt on from Philippians, right? You might be able to step in and, and save his life before he gets crushed because he thinks he can bench press 400 pounds, right? I got this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't know if that's what they sound like in the gym. I just imagine that is how they sound like. It's, that's in my mind. Um, <laughs> All right, let's look at these principles. Number one, you could probably guess this one, right? Come on, you knew it was going to be context is king. I talk about this all the time. All meaning is context-driven. Everything, every word, every sentence, it, the, the meaning, it has, it has no meaning apart from the con context. 
he, just like the, the prime rule in real estate is location, 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 the, the prime rule in interpreting is location. Where is this text in its context? Where is it located, right? All meaning is context-driven. It all comes from how the author has chosen to embed the word or phrase into the larger context. So let me give you some examples. Let's, let's take the English word back. What does the word back mean in English? I don't know. I use it in a sentence. Because I could say, get back, or my back hurts, or the back of the chair, or it's in the back, or man, that really takes me back. Or back in my day, all of those are different meanings of the word back. It all depends on how I'm using it in its context. That's what we mean when we say something like a word has a broad semantic range. It means it can mean a lot of different things depending on how it's used in the context. We can do the exact same thing with a word from the Bible, like the word flesh. What does the word flesh mean in the Bible? Well, in, in Romans 8.13, it says to live according to the flesh. That's talking about our sinful desires. But then in John 1.14, it says the word became flesh. That's talking about Jesus becoming a human being. Hebrews 5.7 says in the days of his flesh. That's talking about his earthly life. Luke 3.6 says all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That means all people. We could go on. There's more examples with the word flesh, but you get the point. The meaning is driven by the context. We could do the same thing with a phrase. Let's take a phrase in English. Like, he's hot. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. Are you talking about his temperature? Are you talking about his angry attitude? Are you talking about his jump shot in basketball? Are you talking about his looks? His current marketability? What, what are you talking about? I don't know. I need, I need context. Right? Without context, understanding is impossible. That is why context is king. You guys say that with me. Context is king. That's the danger of taking a verse out of context, right? You, you risk misunderstanding and misapplication. So, for example, in the early days of radio, I think I have a picture up here, yeah. Uh, kids, for those of you who don't know, that's an old radio. It's this thing where you just, like, listen to something. There's, like, no pictures. It's just, okay. In the early days of radio, Christians... Some Christians thought radio is satanic. And they had biblical support for that because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. <laughs> Ephesians 2.2. 2. Now, we all laugh at that, but we do that. We take verses out of context and we misunderstand and misapply them. This is why context is king. So when I talk about context, I'm talking about the logical context, the literary context. That's the central idea when it comes to context. This is the words, the phrases, the sentences, the paragraphs, uh, right where you're reading in the Bible. And the key here is that the immediate context has the greatest influence on the meaning. You've got to resist the temptation when you're reading the Bible. I know that your mind is going to make connections to other things that you read in the Bible. You've got to resist the temptation to immediately jump to those things to understand the text that you're, you're reading. I'm not saying that, that Scripture doesn't help you understand Scripture. It certainly does, right? What I'm saying is, is that God has given every single text. He's put every text into the Bible, and our job is to let that text have its say. 
to not obscure it with what other texts are saying, right? So we have to understand it in its context. Principle number two is observation. Uh, Hendricks says, to observe well is to interpret well. Here we're just asking, what do I see? What are the facts? This is mostly about learning how to read well, right? We want to read thoughtfully. We want to put our thinking caps on when we come to the Bible for our devotions. We don't want to go through the motions. We want to read carefully. We want to take our time, not rush through what we're reading. Uh, We want to read purposefully, knowing that every single word and phrase that we're encountering is put there for a reason, right? So we want to read uh, well when we read the Bible. So we want to look for emphasis. What's being emphasized? What's the theme? What are some of the key words or phrases? Is anything being repeated? If you see something repeated, that's a pretty good uh, clue that that is the author's intended emphasis or meaning, right? So take John 15, 1 through 11. In that passage, the word abide shows up 10 times in 11 verses. Now, it's a pretty safe bet that the theme of that text is abiding in Christ Jesus. Or, take our text, for example, the word destruction comes up three times in three verses, right? So, it's heresy is dangerous. (laughs) Like, that's the message. Heresy is dangerous. So, hold fast to the truth, right? So, we also look for descriptive words. Our text today says they brought it in secretly. That's an adverb. It describes how they brought it in. How'd they bring it in? Secretly. That's telling us something. They call it destructive heresy. That's an adjective. It helps describe what's happening. So with observation, we're just trying to see what's there. What's there? What are the facts? And finally, the third principle, um, I like to call interrogate the text. You could say ask and answer questions. I think Hendricks calls this uh, read inquisitively. We just want to ask lots of questions and try to answer them of the text. We want to answer the, the six basic questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and so what? So what is like, well, who cares? Like, what's the, what difference does it make, right? If you answer those six basic questions, if you start engaging with the text with those questions, you're going to go a long way in understanding what is God trying to communicate to me here. Ask the kind, what, what connections are being made? Is there a comparison or a contrast? This is where you're going to run into things like simile and metaphor. Your key words are as or like. So Peter, he's about to call these false teachers waterless springs. (laughs) That's a metaphor. It tells us something about them. It's provocative, right? This image, this picture, right? We also want to ask, look for other connecting words like therefore, since, or if-then statements. Those show cause and effect. We want to look for things that show uh, explanation or reason. Your key words here are so that and for. Man, really pay attention to those two words. Pay attention to the word for when you see it in the Bible because oftentimes it means, or it's giving you the reason. It means because. You can often substitute because. Not every time. Pay attention to the context, right? But when you see the word for at the beginning of a phrase, the beginning of a sentence, often it means because. So for example, 1 Corinthians 3.11, be careful how you build. Why? For or because No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's what the false teachers were trying to do. They were trying to lay a different foundation, trying to build on some other foundation. You can't do it. Christ is our foundation. Hold to Christ and his word, right? Or when you see so that or that, 
That's telling you purpose or result. So, for example, Peter said in chapter 1 that God gave us his promises. He gave us his promises so that we might become partakers of divine nature. He tells us the purpose for which God has given us his promises. Now, I know, I know that other than like English teachers and homeschool moms, like right now, most of you are probably like, man, this is boring, right? Uh, all this grammar, right? All the parts of speech and how they're connected to each other. I, I understand that. But I want to tell you, this is where you are going to find some of the sweetest truths, how you're going to unpack some of the sweetest truths in the scriptures. The study of scripture, though, is not um, complete. So we've got context, observation, asking questions. Um, That's interpretation, but that's only half the work. We don't stop there. There's one more step, and that's application. The study of scripture is not complete until we apply it. Right, because we don't come to the Bible. You don't read the Bible in the morning because you're, you're some kind of disinterested scholar who's just trying to like master what the content is. That's not how we come to the Bible. We come to the Bible as disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. Our aim, our goal is living the truth. That's what we're after here, right? Not just knowing what does it say. Great, you know what it says. That doesn't make you a mature Christian. A mature Christian is the one who lives the truth. Amen? Okay, so we got to apply God's word. If you stop at interpretation, that's like planting a garden, and and you you went through all the work of planting the seeds, watering it, weeding it, everything grew up. You got the tomatoes, you got the cucumbers, you got it all right there, and you don't pick any of it. (laughs) You just leave it all on the vine. You get through all the work and no fruit. That's not what we want. You've got to go all the way to application so that there's fruit that comes in your life. Okay, so the key in application is to make sure you ask the question first, what did it mean for them, before you ask the question, what does it mean for me? You have to understand what did it mean for them before you can apply it to yourself, right? So we could look at our text today and ask, well, what's the message to them? Well, he emphasizes how destructive the teaching is. He says it three times. He exposes the dangers, the methods of the false teachers. The point is not to join up with them because it leads to destruction for them, for you, and the church. This is all very bad. (laughs) This is bad. The implication is they should follow Christ and the way of truth instead of these false teachers. So what does it mean for us? Well, since false teaching is still an issue that we face today, it's a little bit more simple because it's almost a one-to-one application. It's pretty much the same thing for us as it is for them. Sometimes you got to do a little bit more work, though. you got to find the biblical principle that's, that is in their day that you can then apply to our day. It takes a little bit more work. So here are some questions that you can ask when you're trying to apply the Bible. Now, it's not like when you sit down to read the Bible you're going to ask every single one of these questions every single time. That's not the point. The point is to come with this kind of attitude to be asking questions. Okay, God, what do you have for me today? And I put this first question up here. Is there a truth for me to believe? Why did I put that first? Because when we think about application, we often think that I have to do something. But just as often, if not more, the application of the scripture is to believe something. Not do something, believe something. So is there a truth for me to believe? Is there a a sin for me to avoid? Is there a command to obey? 
Is there a principle for me to apply? Is there an example to follow, a promise to hold, a prayer to repeat? So we ask these questions of the text, and it helps us make application. James says, be doers of the word and not mere hearers only. He uses this example of a, of a guy who looks at himself in the mirror, and then he goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. It's like going into the mirror in the morning, and you look at your face, and you're like, man, i got to wash my face, i got to brush my teeth, i got to comb my hair, and then you walk away, and you forget all about it. You don't do any of it. That's the person who reads the Bible, studies it, and then never puts it into practice. You need to be doers of the word, right? We adorn the doctrine of God by living it out. Now, I want to address this question, hermeneutics. Who needs it, right? Who cares about all this stuff that we're talking about this morning? It's a lot, Michael. Like, it's a lot. I get it. I understand. You might be thinking, I don't need all of this. I'm just going to read my Bible. I don't need hermeneutics. Here's the deal. You're already doing hermeneutics. You're already trying to answer the question, what did God say? The question isn't whether or not you're doing it. The question is, how well are you doing it? Now, if I told you that in your backyard is all this gold, right? And the deeper you dig in your backyard, the more gold you're going to find. If I told you that as a guarantee, would you be content to dig with your fingernails? No. You'd want the very best tools that you could get your hands on so that you could mine the riches that are contained there. It's exactly the same thing with God's Word. These things, these things are the tools to mine the riches of God's Word. That's why we're spending time on this today. One final caveat. We've been focused primarily on your personal study of God's Word, what you do in your devotions. But none of us is perfect understanding. Amen? That means we have to have help in understanding the Scriptures. It's important to keep a sense of humility and teachability when we come to the scriptures. I haven't said anything today about using study tools like commentaries or systematic theologies. I haven't said anything about the place of tradition in guarding us against false teaching. I haven't said anything about the place of pastors or other believers in helping us to understand the scriptures. All of those things are important. All of them. The Bible is sufficient. Amen? That's a big deal for us at Gospel Fellowship Church. The Bible is sufficient, but... Your own interpretation and understanding of it is not. You are not sufficient unto yourself. You need help. So you have to be humble and teachable. That's why we need the body of Christ. We have to be like Apollos. Do you remember Apollos? Right? The Bible says of Apollos that he was competent in the Scriptures, and yet he still needed Priscilla and Aquila, to teach him to explain the way of God more accurately. He was competent in the scriptures, but he still needed help. That's what we need to be like. All right, the lies that we're tempted to believe, they can be little or they can be big. They can be obvious, they can be subtle. They are always dangerous. It doesn't matter how the lies come to us, the defense always remains the same knowing the truth, holding fast to Christ and his word. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, he warns them, beware, after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in. They're going to speak twisted things, and they're going to try to draw the disciples after them. Right? So he says, 
Be alert. Therefore, be alert, remembering for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish you with tears. Right? He's preaching the truth to them so they could be anchored. And then he says, And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all the saints, or among all those who are sanctified. So like Paul, I commend you to God's word. Brothers and sisters, hold fast to Christ and his word. Amen? Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, what a precious, precious treasure that we have in the word. God, we thank you and we praise you for it. And God, I, I know all our hearts here today, just, we just desire to be further rooted, further anchored, further grounded in your truth. So would you help us, God? Would you give us understanding as we read your word? Would you ground us in the truth? And would you guard us, guard us individually, guard us as a church from false doctrine, Lord? We want to lift up your name. We want to to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. So help us to do that, Lord. We ask it in your name. And all God's people said, amen.